Welcome everybody to Be More Rugby podcast that's truly international. First of all, Lee, welcome back. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, James. Uh, nice to see you. I'm still struggling from the weekend, unfortunately. You know, <laughs> the older you get, the longer it takes to recover from a uh, a little game of rugby. But uh, yeah, I can I can smell the deep heat from here, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we have Brendan Meany with us from across the water from the USA in Chicago. Brendan, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's an honor. No problems at all. Looking forward to getting into to chatting. Just um, we'll come on to it shortly. But uh, Brendan is a, a doctor of sport and performance psychology, um, and uh, played and coached rugby around the world, which we'll come on to. But yeah. um, first things first, as you all are away now, we'll have a bit of a warm up and chat some rugby. And um, seeing as we've got um, a friend from across the water, um, Lee was keen to talk about the USA and where they go, seeing as they didn't qualify for the World Cup. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of situation, I, I think, that um, that they probably find themselves in. Um, uh, for, for me, first of all, it was a big shame that they didn't qualify, um, being as the you know the World Cup's coming to them in 2030. Um, and I really think it would have been another you know springboard to try and move the game on within America. But um, uh, Brendan, how do you how do you see it? How does how does the game sort of sit in America currently? Well, a little anecdotal story. A couple of my uh, former South African teammates and coaches came over and they came up to our first game. We rock up to the pitch and they go, all right, where's the change room? And we all look around and we go, change room? <laughs> You're not going to find one of those around here. So you can even just tell how the establishment and the foothold and rugby of the, the clubhouse and the pitch and it being a place where people gather in a lot of places around the world it's not really like that here. Um, the MOR has done a lot with, with a very grassroots campaign and they've done a good job of getting the product out to people who already follow rugby. But the problem is that that's such a niche group of people and them getting new uh, interest in the game. There's been a lot of barriers to entry and that could be you know, with the, uh, over simulation of sport that we have in this country, uh, football being king here, you know, American football and baseball, hockey, uh, NBA, uh, even throwing uh, lacrosse and golf. They're all vying for attention. And one more sport with, uh, from the American perspective, with very complicated rules and very counterintuitive of passing the ball backwards and move forward. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of confusion about the game. I get when people found out I played rugby. A lot of times they'll ask me, uh, "Oh, is that the one where you run around with a stick and you scoop up the ball and throw it?" I'm like, <laughs> um, "No, that's, that's lacrosse." Um, so it, it is growing, and they've done a great job uh, with with what they have um, and trying to incorporate some of the international uh, game, especially players on the back end of their career. Um, but we did have two franchises fold with MLR. You had LA, which is a huge market, the second largest market in in the country. And then you had Austin, uh, which is another growing, budding metropolis that has about 2 million people. And people who are kind of um, 
like fringe thing. So you know, rugby would be considered a fringe sport here. And people in Austin, that their their city sayings keep Austin weird. It's a very unique, very interesting place with a lot of art and a lot of uh, people following their passions. And uh, if rugby didn't take off there, um, you know, there, there are some some uphill battles that the the league has, but they've done a great job and. Actually, this this season we're finally having a professional team in Chicago. So one of my friends, um, Phil, was able to make that happen, and and kind of in one very quick fell swoop, brought the team in Chicago, and they oh, they started another one in Miami. So I wish them the best of luck. I'm gonna be a fan. Um, again, supporting one of my buddies who's involved in the in the ownership, but. Your guess is as good as mine. I wish I had a better answer for you. I, I can give you more of the, the synopsis and let you make your own decision. I must admit, we were surprised when the USA didn't qualify, especially in the fashion that, that it happened. Um, but we kind of thought, how's that? Because a number of our lads go over to America for, for sports because America to us is is certainly during that education phase is so good for to give opportunities for for young sporty lads and girls <clears throat> to go and get an education doing what they love um and come out of the other end either with a you know a, a contract out there or come back here and, and pick up a contract back here or at least come back with a, a good education but i think the way i saw it was there's going to be less of an interest in young um, boys and girls that want to go to America for rugby now that they haven't qualified for the World Cup until the next phase of World Cup, you know, challenges. What do you think? It's a, yeah, it's certainly a difficult one. Um, it's interesting to get um, Brendan's take on it about the actual, is, is there any space for the game within within the country itself? Um, certainly when my when my lab was, has been looking at um, going out to uh, to college, um, specifically to to play and to and to do a degree, I found it quite difficult to find the information. You know, there's the, the, the it wasn't forthcoming, um, uh, and it wasn't easy to source the information that I wanted to so we could make a, a reasonable decision on whether it was um, the right route for him to follow. So that was a bit tricky, but it could well be because we don't over over here we don't appreciate the actual scale of well, first of all, the scale of the country, um, and therefore the number of people. And therefore, you know, what proportion of that, that, that those of that population is even interested in rugby? And as as you said, Brendan, you know, people turning up and saying, "Well, is that the one you where you use a, a stick and scoop the ball up and bat it?" <laughs> well, that just kind of shows you um, uh, that the people that the word's not really out there. Um, I, I think that's probably fair to say. Um, and unfortunately, because of the fact that that, that they've not qualified for the World Cup. Um, uh, Later, later this year, that's going to have a further negative effect in my in my opinion, um, which which I think is a real big shame, um, and especially the way you know the the, the actual um, uh, qualification went, you know, with the repechage being losing out by one point, and then you know in that final sort of opportunity in Dubai, you know, um, coming joint top of the table and losing on points difference. So it's really it's a real tough way for for the team that's trying to forge a way forward move the game forward within 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 the USA. Um it's a real tough tough way for them to to sort of fall at the final hurdle really. 
Yeah, that not qualifying uh, in this upcoming World Cup, especially with us winning the bid, the host, the, the next one. I, it would have been a great segue and would have gotten a lot of people excited. Um, oh, man, there's a lot there to unpack. But where I would start is that collegially, it's not advertised much, but there are finally schools giving out scholarships. Doesn't always come in the way of like the, the big public university. Some of the more private universities are finding ways that they're using rugby to not only increase their international students who generally uh, that has funded a lot of our university systems, not necessarily from the UK, but around the world. Um, so they found a way to kind of use that as their own little their own little recruiting tool. Um, and they're, they're finding more success in the sevens game. And I feel like I don't like it. I never played sevens. I was never been invited to even be part of the roster on sevens. So I don't, I think the only time I played sevens was at the, uh, the Belizean jail when we played a sevens game against the prisoners, which is a whole nother uh, <laughs> story to tell you later. But um, I think the sevens game is, is not, what I'm into, but I think most Americans are going to bridge the gap uh, with the amount of games that they have, how frequently they're played, uh, having the tour go around the world, and the colleges really seem to pick up and boost their um, their sevens exposure and their programs as of late. It seemed like the 15 game, the 15s game, is still kind of stuck in that. I don't want to call it amateur, but more in the intramural. Uh, intramural that travels and plays other teams type of realm. Um, so there is growth happening in the in the collegiate game, which will then in turn hopefully transfer into the professional game. That, that's kind of our model that we follow here with American football. As James knows, him and I spoke at our initial meeting about how big college football is. And it was almost bigger or as big as pro with the amount of games. And I think if you follow that model, and that proven track record, that might feed into the professional game a little bit more. You know, we had the 2020 Combine for MLR not too long ago. I think that kind of hype and that excitement and having more events and getting more local people involved in it, I think that's what's really going to help grow the game. Unfortunately, USA's model was to look to the outside to try and think that they're going to bring over Monotone. They brought over... Uh, I think the Beast had a tour in America. And then who was a big, uh, the number 12 from, um, was it Henri Duzatois from, from France? They brought over. And some of the more higher salaries that they paid for that didn't really resonate with the American people. I think when it becomes more of a homegrown thing and they finally commit to that, I think they're going to see that pay its dividends. And people are going to get excited about local people going off and doing great things in the sport. So, I think, I think um, I think you're right. You were saying about the sevens being more popular out there. It, I think yeah. that apologies for that noise. The sevens being more popular in the USA seems to sit more with that American sporting, um, <laughs> lots of short bursts of energy, um, then a little bit of a sit back rather than the fifteens. But yeah, I think. But also, it's an it's an easier version to understand. Mm, exactly. you know, it is it is what it is a lot more space on the pitch so we don't get that many rucks or that many infringements shall we say in sevens and what we do what we do get is dealt with by the referee really really quickly 
Um, so the game's a lot, a lot faster flowing. So yeah, yeah I, I can understand why, why, why that would be the case. But um, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm seven. So you know, over here is for 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 me was always the thing we did at the end of the season when we were completely tired. Our body was broken, and the yeah. sun came out, and you thought, well, okay, now now would be a good idea to go and play some sevens, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. you realise after after when after the second minute that you really shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, well, especially if you're a number eight or a, or a former blindside flanker, you realize really quick that uh, there's a reason why your invitation got lost in the mail. That's so. absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but and I think you're right. I think the the um, palatability of it and the ability to understand the game as it moves faster in sevens, which is less convoluted. Um, I think <clears throat> for me, it takes away a lot of the, the strategy out of it that I really, really love. I love the complicated defenses. I love watching a one through. 3-1. I love watching 2-4-2 defense. I love seeing how teams are using the 12 as a second fly half for bringing that 15 into the line where you don't really get that parity. Um, but realistically for the, the common fan or the new fan, they're gonna get they get lost in the wash a lot. And the sevens game seems to be the path forward as begrudgingly as I uh I just want to see rugby grow here and be an outlet, an alternative for people who might not fit in other sports because, as as we are going to talk about later, rugby's for everyone. Um, and the lesson that you learn from the game, opposed to some of the other ways that uh, American sport has been traditionally taught, I know it was a revolution in my life, and I really hope that other people get to uh, experience the beauty of that game. That's cool. I was going to um, wrap up our warm-up by getting some predictions on the Six Nations results this weekend, but I think the only prediction we're after is whether the England-Wales game <laughs> actually goes ahead or or whether Wales really are in the position where they're going to strike a, a major international, which, as I understand, will cost cost uh, the Welsh Rugby Union nine million, nine million pounds yeah, yeah. if they don't play the game. And I don't know how that's going to help. If they got no money now, how's <laughs> costing them nine million going to help? I don't know. I don't know. I feel for them. I really feel for the players. I really feel for uh, for the whole system. To be honest with you, because it seems a little bit of um, dare I say, fuck up. I think that's a fair fair summary. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think the problem is they just need to look at the number of regions they've got in Wales, the number of regions they're funding, and therefore the number of players. Um, have a look at the pot of cash they've got and uh, see how they divvy it up. It just doesn't seem to work. Um, I think that probably one of the regions has got to disappear and uh, that, or, or maybe be absorbed by one of the others. Um, and then that 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 cash then uh, gets divvied up between the three that are remaining. Um, you know, when you've only got a finite amount of money, you, you can't increase it. You know, there's, there's no way you can do that unless everyone's prepared to take a pay cut or, you know. So that's that's interesting though because we're talking about the the international players potentially striking over the deal that they got. But if that does come to a point where there's just not the the cash for all of the regions to survive, and one has to go or or two of them have to merge, then that just means that the casualties are moving further down the pay scale, surely, because the ones that are making up the teams while the internationals aren't there, well, they're the ones then that are going to lose their position, surely. I think evidently the players in the, at the at the lower levels are going to have to take a hit. Something mm. something's got to happen there, um, and then it, I suppose it's then more important to understand what what are the I call it demands of the um, 
of the um, star players, you know, what sort of what sort of remuneration they're, they're demanding. And really, that's going to be the drive to understand, you know, how much cash there is remaining to support the uh, the players in the lower levels, which, of course, un- underpin underpin uh, the regions and, of course, underpin Welsh rugby as a whole. It's a difficult one. Um, but if the money's not there, it's it's not there and uh, and not playing this weekend and uh, the potential £9 million loss to the Welsh, uh, Welsh Union is not going to help the situation at all. And I think this 60-game cap yeah. rule, I think that they can't afford to keep that in place. If if these lads um, are going to survive, um, and the teams actually, the, the regions are going to survive, I think they've got to give some of the younger players an opportunity to go and get bigger money oh, I think so. elsewhere yeah. and still play for for Wales. And, and I, I understand why they want to do that, but... But if you I, yeah, I, I read up on that. I, I was very unaware of the sixty cap uh, limit, and that was that's when you're finally free to go and explore other options. And I've, I've heard about well, all white players going to Japan, a lot of English players going to, to France, and making those jumps. And all everyone but the Irish really seem to be making you know looking out elsewhere. And I didn't realize that rugby was in such a dire financial state. With the amount of constraints that were on the players, um, I James brought that up to me in our in our conversation. I had to go and read up more on that, and uh, yeah, that's quite a predicament when you have players who uh, there's clearly the money isn't there, but the administration uh, maybe there's some sort of solution in the middle, and how you uh, look out for player well being and allow them to pursue opportunities while still preserving the greater good of of their, their football union, the rugby football union. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult when you, you know, when you're looking at a professional player, and if you say their their um, career at the top level is could probably span, say, 10 years as a as an average, um, you know, you do get props particularly in some of, you know, some of the um, backs as well, get away with, a, a, well, look at Mike Brown, he's come back again, hasn't he, yeah, at the weekend, um, at 37, I think he is now, yeah. um, which is great to see, by the way. So, you know. Um, after I'll come back at the weekend, James. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, when you, you, it's very difficult to for someone who's got such a, a short um, uh, earning life, if you like, at that, yeah. at that level, to restrict them and say, no, you can't go and play in France and earn some decent money, some bigger money. You know, if you don't go and do that, you will not be able to be selected for Wales. Mm. It just seems a, it just seems not not quite right, and they've got to find a way around that. But I mean, you got to think. South Africa did that for a while, and 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 they are, they're played deteriorating significantly. And then when they kind of reeled it back in again, I don't know what the answer is. We're just pontificating here, right? Yep. It's all about the world's problems. But South Africa had from um, what 2015 down to 2020, and they they're playing in international rugby it dips significantly, and just being on the outside looking in. What they've done with Six Nations, what they've done with the, the autumn internationals and the summer internationals, like that, that's when I come alive. Like I, I love the competitiveness and the parity between those teams. And, you know, if, how do you allow players to go and play halfway around the world and then show up for a two week tour or, a, you know, three week tour and, and expect to be competitive when ultimately what we're in the World Cup event is such a pedestal? I feel like the international game will feed the World Cup better, and I don't know if that message comes from the from the club level. You guys are no more than I do, but 
It's difficult. I think um, rugby's in dire straits, I think, everywhere. Well, we certainly haven't got enough time to solve it tonight. So no, we <laughs> With that then, I think um, we cross our fingers and hope for an England-Wales match this weekend and hope that Wales are on it as well when they turn up. If they do turn up, they haven't got all this crap going on in their head. They don't need it. So hopefully let's have a good weekend. Um, and yeah, let's kick on with our first half. So uh, first of all, everybody, want to welcome Brendan Meany from all the way across in the USA. Um, he's a doctor of sport and performance psychology, educator and yoga instructor. <laughs> uh, he moved from college football to play rugby in Chicago. He then played in England. Uh, he's then coached in South Africa, Argentina, Japan, USA, head coach of Belize rugby team for a while. For a cup of coffee. For a cup of coffee. There you go. Um, and, uh, what can I say? Um, great to have you on, uh, especially as the psychology of the sport for us is is so important to to understand just how it helps people. Um, so really looking forward to getting into to conversations on that as well. But we'll start our first half off, off with um, where did it all start for you, rugby? Uh, I me and my wife. It happened on accident. I uh, I met my wife at a Bears game. I was in line for a beer at halftime. She came walking up the stairs, said, hey, you, can I buy you a beer? And I got a free ticket to the game. Didn't even want to go. I was hoping uh, before my friend came to my house. I used to live right by Soldier Field that the 7.55 is supposed to be over at 8. I'm like, maybe he won't show up. You know, Maybe I don't have to go today. It was a late night the night before, and thankfully I, I showed up at the game Thankfully, I randomly bumped in my wife, and you know, now we have a 15-month-old child and a house and all that stuff. So you'll never know where the world will take you. But I was playing a flag football tournament. I was done playing college football. <clears throat> I was playing a flag football tournament, and there's some rugby guys there. I just started talking to them, and, and uh, it was almost pathetic. But after college, especially being on such a tight-knit team for five years, through the ups and downs of early early adulthood, for the first time in my life, I found myself without a team. I really, I didn't know what to do. I I, I, I wasn't part of something bigger than me. I wasn't working for a common goal with people throughout the week and having that, that cathartic release on the weekend. And I got, they asked me to play. And I said, sure, I'll give it a go. And then I got around that kind of like-minded environment that was had a lot of elements of football. There's a lot of crossover from American football, but it was a different culture and different community that I hadn't really experienced before. I had guys on my team from New Zealand. I had guys on my team from Ireland, England, and other parts of Chicago. And some guys who played from uh, different parts of in, in college at different levels. And I was just like, what? I got around as a group of people. And I'm like, what have I been missing? Well, what, you know, like, what, what, why did I, I love American football and the relationships I built and experiences I had, but I got involved in rugby. And I'm kind of like, wow, you know, I, I, I really regret not doing this most of my life. And so I feel. How old were you then when you found I rugby? I think I was probably about 23. So I played football from 10 years old you know i was a little you got the big helmet and a little body running around <laughs> and uh and, you know, bumping into people and um 
not touching the ball. You know, I played, uh, I played running back in high school eventually, but I was a bigger kid growing up, as you can imagine, playing number eight and there was weight limit. So I always had to play with bigger people, older people. I was a fourth grader playing with eighth graders. So that age difference would be a 10 year old playing with a 14 year old. So, you know, I got my, got whipped around a little bit. She taught me a lot, but I mean, I, I, most of my life playing American football, I, I, I didn't touch the ball. So then when I kind of get involved in rugby and everybody's moving the ball around and it, no matter where you play, you're, you're a eligible receiver. Like, between that and the culture and, and the transferable skills, I'm like, man, I, I don't, sometimes you don't realize that you're not in love until you, you find, you meet your new love. And, and uh, that's kind of how it went. And all my attention, all my focus went into rugby. And even now, like I'll put some American football on the background and we'll gather for the game, but I don't really watch it to be honest with you. The only thing I really watch intently is international rugby. Because college football is is a high level, it's a high, it's a high standard. Um, oh, and I know when I was younger, I used to look, used to watch a lot, sort of late in the in the night, early hours of the morning, college football, and and it's big crowds at college football. Oh yeah. So how did that How did that affect you then? Suddenly, not being part of that. So I and, I, and let me be clear, I didn't play at Ohio State. I played Division two school, one level below that. So we we played high-level football, and there was really, really, really good players. A select few of them would get a shot in the NFL, but even most of Michigan's roster or Alabama or Auburn, some of these people are playing in front of 80 to 100,000 people. They don't go on to play professional. The, 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 and that was when I, when I went and played in the UK, and they're, they're all asking me, like, why are you playing rugby? I go, because oh, I like it. They go, why don't you play American football in in you know in, in professional? I was like, well, I wasn't good enough. And they're like, what do you mean? And I kind of explained to them how how difficult it really is to get that level. And then I started going through the tiers of college and letting them know that I played mid-tier college football. We were really good for our tier, but there were guys above me who were all world athletes. And um, it's kind of difficult for other people to understand that that after you play college football, there's no recreational or American football clubs that you could really go and play at. You, you play, if you're a high school football player, you play your senior year, and it's a very emotional thing because you are saying goodbye to the sport. You will probably never Does put that completely on... finished then, Brendan? Is that, is that, that's finished and there's no league to move into or... Okay, no. I wasn't aware of that. Okay, no. that's interesting. Yeah, and, unless you're yeah. you're offered uh, either a scholarship or a walk-on, or you participate somehow, some way, at your college. But but there's there's no American football outside of playing at the highest level you can play, and for most American football players, that ends when you're 17 or 18 years old. Wow. So when you're a senior in high school, your last level, kind of like your sixth form, before you go off to university you either you play your last high school football game and half the the young men or, or now the women are playing american football as well people are sobbing that, that's it so you might play from eight years old to 18 and, and you'll never get that opportunity again so with college you either get asked to go into maybe a combine or maybe some sort of developmental team 
which there's not many levels in the NFL. Or Germany has a few opportunities. Um, I think there's some smaller American football leagues in Japan, and that that's that's irrelevant because they're they're nowhere near the caliber um, or prestige that the NFL. I mean, the NFL is a worldwide product, so that's it's very strange. I was surprised at that with as well. Lee, I I thought it was that there was just more you know local clubs and stuff that you could go and get involved in, but. So that beggars the question as to why rugby is not so much more popular in uh, in the states. So, for example, say you saying you moved from American football to rugby and loved it. Um, it, it yeah, it begs the question: Why doesn't more people that have played college football go? Well, what else can we do now? Oh, rugby's there, and rugby's there for somebody in there. Well, late thirties, Lee. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> late th- late thirties a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> You, that's a great question. And I, I really don't have an answer for it other than the idea that American football is so dangerous. The kind of the, the idea of us playing contact sport outside of something that's organized, even though rugby in the UK is very, very organized. The idea that you're playing rugby on a Saturday afternoon, like I, I'm, I'm a high school teacher. I would go in with like stitches under my eye and, and my eyelid sutured up and, black eyes and, and people be like what a savage you know it's like no i was playing rugby and then that's when oh were you playing with the stick and the ball and <laughs> well <clears throat> something different and I'll, I'll send them a youtube link after that but yeah i really don't have an answer for it other than that we just have this belief that you play to the highest level that you can and then you move the more intramural sports that are not dangerous to contact like softball or, or intramural basketball or, you know, park rec basketball or um, a lot of people might play intramural soccer or whatever it might be. And then you go to some league that just kind of hosts you on one night of the week and you go play like over by Lakeshore Drive or you play uh, in a park in Chicago. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, we, we abandon some of the more contact sport and what people don't realize yeah if you're number eight you're a or you're a prop you're involved in a lot you're involved in a lot of contact but a lot of people don't understand that rugby you are you're not allowed to be hit you know or tackled if you don't have a ball so people think you know i would say oh oh rugby is football without pads i'm like not really because when that ball is snapped i can run at lee or i can run it at james and I, it doesn't matter if I'm allowed to or not, or if that's part of a play. It's really, I'm um, snap. It's chaos. Where rugby has a lot more laws to protect uh, the ball carrier, protect people on the field. So we we get that we get those wires crossed all the time. I I don't know why. So tell us where you because you came over to the UK and you played in rugby in the UK for a while. Was that before you moved into the coaching side of things? Yeah, yeah, I played. I played in Norwich, um, and anybody I tell in the UK that I played in Norwich, I lived in Norwich. I was like, "Why? Why the heck did you go to Norwich?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love it. Like that. That is my second home. Um, not only was it an incredibly influential experience um, and changed a lot of things for me, and we can get into that later. But uh, the people I met there and the way I was embraced in the club um, straight away, I and the way I changed as a human being um, 
and Sylvia was. That was that was the most pivotal point in my life. Where I could look back and it was the old Brendan moved to the UK, and then a new Brendan came home. Um, and I'm I still wasn't fully developed uh, the person I am today. And I'm, I have a long way to go. We all do, right? We're all perfectly imperfect, but. That was the first time I really started to develop uh, a better relationship with myself, as well as a better relationship with sport, a healthier relationship with sport, and understanding how uh, insignificant I am in the world when you go and live in a different culture and you have all these, these uh, eye-opening experiences when you uh, end up with egg on your face for making mistakes of saying the wrong thing or going the wrong way on the train or getting lost in town and uh, but I've, I've I love that experience it was so near and dear to my heart and the people I met and some of my friends I'm still in contact with now and my wife and I go back to UK uh, as, as recent as 2019 so I mean I've been back to Norwich probably five times you know probably most people visit Norwich once and or or never um, yeah but I keep I've never got there yet mate unfortunately <laughs> But it is on my list. So well, Lee, I can tell you that the, the winters are remarkably mild, and uh, there's nothing like you know going in the Norwich, hanging out for a couple of days, and then great going to Great Yarmouth and getting some mushy peas on the pier. I might be the only American outside of the, uh, some of our allied allied soldiers who have done that in the last fifty years. But do you not have mushy peas is, in the states? Is there not a thing? mushy peas? Don't exist in the states. No, oh no! That, I don't know you don't be do baked beans on toast. I know that much. No, we definitely don't do that either. Uh, mushy peas is, is left off the list. Shut me! I like them. I love them. I think uh, <laughs> I, I I eat a lot of uh, like I'll, I'll put brown sauce and a lot of stuff in uh, London pub, and I I, I have a lot of uh, unique tendencies from my time over there, but. Yeah, I really, I really love the people and and my friends. I still talk to regularly and. Unfortunately, the the person who brought me over there, uh, who was a president of the club at the time, and um, you know, I call my English father, Chris Gillen, passed away uh, last summer, and that was a very difficult uh, time for me, just by the bond that um, him, his wife, Christine, took me under the wing, and another guy named Peter Walsh, who I'd be remiss if I did not mention uh, the way they loved me like a son. Um, I, I actually credit them in my dissertation uh, for helping me become the man I am today. So it's it just a huge part of my life. And uh, I reflect fondly on it, whether people want to go to Norwich or not, but I, I, I miss it all the time. So where did you go from when you came up to the UK? You played rugby, mm -hmm. went straight back to the States. Is that then when you decided to get involved in the coaching? Shortly after that, I, I played for three or four more years after that um, in the States. And then I got more into coaching my body after college football and, and a lot of rugby was just worn down. I think I played until I was about 29 or 30. And then I said, you know, enough is enough. My nose, I have a fake nose and we're going to get all my weird, uh, <laughs> weird things that happen. Uh, I, I was going to say snap, actually. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, when we had my, uh, my mother-in-law was really, Wondering what our daughter's nose gonna look like. She said, Oh, I hope it looks like your nose. I go, Well, this isn't really my nose. This is a manufacturer from breaking it so many times, playing rugby and everything. So I finally got my nose fixed and and I kind of said, Well, I'm moving more into the coaching realm. And 
Um, I got going with coaching in Chicago and then it was just really, a, I'm, I'm, um, I'm kind of like a serial self-improver and I'm always, I, I, the best challenges I ever set were the ones for myself. So I kind of went off on this quest of how do I learn as much as I can about rugby from as many different people and many different perspectives. I didn't know a ton about rugby uh, when I played it, especially when I stopped playing it and when I got more into coaching. But I, I realized really quick that all these different regions of the world play rugby in a different way. I thought, all right, if I can get a sample of that or be in that environment, just a fly on the wall for a little bit of time, maybe I can kind of make my own brand and, and kind of develop not only my own style of coaching, but my my own way of approaching the game where I can blend some of the American ideals and principles of sport with this more open and inclusive and worldwide concept that a lot of them don't really understand. And that's what I do a lot with in, in coaching and research. I'm one of the few researchers who has uh, their foot in, in, in heavy in research and, and heavy in applied, applied uh, coaching and learning. And I think I, I, I one of my knacks, kind of like what you, uh, Dr. Adam Nichols, uh, pretty good. I'm pretty good at synthesizing information from a lot of different perspectives and finding ways to not only share it in a, a understandable and welcoming way, but try to uh, create a healthy relationship with it and try to create a, a fun environment with it where you simplify it so people, you limit barriers to entry, but you allow them to kind of explore the idea of not only the sport of rugby, but the greater culture of it, because that's, that's half the fun. Half the fun is the incredibly unique, incredibly strange uh, people that you meet and not strange in a dangerous way, strange in like a really, really fun way. And the stories that they bring um, not only to your team, but the, the color that they add to your life. And uh, some of the experiences I had through rugby, not only were life life-changing, but man, we're, we're going to need a few pints for me to go over all those and uh, tell the wives and the children to go to bed because um, there's some wild, yeah, some wild, wild things happen. So your, um, your doctorate in sport and performance psychology, is that something that you always had in mind to go into when you were going through college? Um, or was that something you took on, you said, a self-confessed uh, serial improver? Is that something that came to you later in life? I've always wanted to get to that level. I always wanted to get a doctoral degree in something. And then I found a perfect program that when the sports psychology with more of an educational background. So I can, I can go more in educational administration, which I don't necessarily have a lot of interest in doing, or I can move more into the uh, leadership component, um, apply practice and, and using sports psychology to help not only create intrinsic motivation for individuals, but help uh, kind of consult or create environments that allow people to be the best version of themselves. And I kind of fell into this program when I was in Belize. I had a lot of time on my hands when I wasn't coaching. And I kind of started thinking, like, I was at a meeting at one of the um, universities on, uh, it was a sport university, and there's all these doctors of 
sport and performance psychology from all over the Caribbean. So I think, well, that sounds like a really cool thing. How do I get involved in that? And I did a lot of that research from Belize. And after I finished my master's, I always knew I wanted to go on the next level, but I didn't know what. And I found myself in the time that I was coaching from when I stopped playing rugby to when I enrolled in school that I was more of a psychologist than I was really a coach. And the kids I taught at, at high school, I was more of a psychologist than I was a teacher. And I wanted to start putting science behind what I was doing. I've always been had a knack for leadership and connecting with people. And now I have the science behind what I'm doing, even a, a firmer understanding of, of why I'm doing it, but, but understanding how I'm doing it. And when that doesn't work, what I can do differently. Because I'm, I'm a big believer that the world, every single thing in the world is based off a relationship. It's a relationship with stimuli, people, things, places, thoughts, ideas. And how do we create a healthy relationship or a positive relationship with that stimuli to help you be the best version of you? And my what I share with a lot of people is between every stimulus and response, there's a gap. And your cognition your actions, your behavior, your demeanor, your your uh, psychosocial uh, projection in the world, the way you interpret it, that gap to me is what, what the happiest and most well-adjusted and the most successful people find and navigate most efficiently. So I try to help people do that because I know in my life, I haven't always done that very well. And reflecting back on my life and the people who helped me, they helped me. They maybe know exactly what they're doing or have a science of the neuroscience behind it and the psychology behind it, but they've always helped me manage that gap most efficiently. I I really love that because I'm no psychologist. Um just a builder in as far as education goes. Um but with regards to what we want to do with, you know, with our more rugby idea and and the reason i've sort of got involved with this and and i know i know i speak for lee and for jay the other co-host that comes on often um and you'll probably recognize this when we're at training with the academy and watching the lads move around there seems to be all of what you said there in that melting pot with the lads the way they interact with each other the way they learn with each other the way they support each other and the way they respond to each other but it's not something we'd call a psychology lesson it's a coaching course a session training session whatever it is but but all of that appears to be there would you say i, I think it yeah absolutely it is um no i think the problem is how do you put it all together really mm. you know all the elements are there you know, all the component parts, but how do you how do you put it all to, put it together? And as you said, to make them be you know the the, the best the best they can be, um, which is I suppose is is the crux of the challenge really. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but um, <laughs> every day, you know, every time we have a session, there's something else that comes from it. You know, you 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 you, you something happens, and uh, you know, something happens with, with one, one of the players, um, and that they you know, more often than not, to be honest, it's not actually. Um, any input from the coaches it's actually one of the other players that 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 helps them to find their way 
You know, it's not necessarily, we just give them a little poke in the right direction from time to time. But generally, it's the, it's the player group which tends to help each other. And that's mm-hmm. what's, um, I mean, we've been in, in, in this um, academy environment for now for three years. And I think it's only now at this point we're sort of starting to recognize uh, those things taking place. But um, yeah, it's quite, it's very interesting anyway. Yeah, I saw James post and I, I I forwarded it and liked it and, and some of my network really jumped on with what you shared about you being your own ecosystem and that you are a buying mind a mind buying crouch set for yep. <laughs> <laughs> slip there. Um but you are you are a mind, your body and your emotions and you're all your confluence of all these things and how you find the right balance of all of them to help you be. You know, again, the best version of yourself. And I really found that coaching is a, a bi-directional process where you are trying to create environments that allow people to explore all their talents and all their capabilities. So you want to create a, a framework that allows people or men, women, whatever, whoever might be coaching to find themselves within the game and within the team. And then you have to provide the structure and support to allow that to be supported through that journey or that process or whatever it might be at them as a rugby player, them as a person. And what I do a lot with teams is I, I help them design not only with the coaches, but, but also inclusively with the players is how we design a framework that everybody agrees upon. So we all have a guiding light. We all have guiding principles of, when I design a train session, all these things are present in that train session because I know that if I do that, not only am I going to keep our team intact and, and keep us moving forward cohesively towards your goal, but you know that people are going to be happier when they're at training because although you might not say it explicitly and you very well can, Hey, right now we're working on decision-making. That is a component of autonomy. One thing that we try to do is we try to develop autonomous rugby players. So during this little game or this little grid or whatever you might be doing, there are no wrong decisions. I want you to practice making decisions. I don't want you to care about that ball as a knockout. I don't want you to care if this is a bad pass. I want you to practice making decisions and hard ones. And how do you replicate that stress of the game? And bringing that back to a core principle or a core value or whatever it might be within your club that they signed up for because they had a meeting or they had some sort of group chat or whatever your way of communicating is. They were asked of what's important to them. And now you facilitate that importance. And not only do you reinforce it in practice, but you give them the opportunity to exercise that. Right? How are you going to become a better communicator if you're never given the opportunity to communicate? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You absolutely know? right. Oh. It's about giving them the opportunity. It, it actually yeah. reminds me of our game. Um, I'll bring this up because <laughs> we got soundly, Lee and I got soundly beaten, properly beaten on yeah, Saturday. Yeah, that's fair to say. But we had um, we had four of our academy players making their debut for senior rugby. And much as we can stand on the sideline and... and I stand there more in a first aid and management capacity and Lee as head coach overseas with the other coaches. But it's more difficult, I think, when you're on the side of the pitch to influence the way a player responds. When you're on the pitch with them, 
and they make a mistake or or you know or, or the opposition breaks through and, and scores it's easier to be on the pitch because there's i think there's more of a degree of empathy and sympathy yeah. when you're there with them to say it doesn't matter it's it's all good we get up we go again and we keep going but when you're stood on the side of the pitch it's a bit more difficult so like you say, uh, and you referenced um, uh, Professor Adam Nichols, who we had on uh, a while ago, he was talking as well. Um, in fact, a few of our um, guests have just the same as you did. It's about creating that environment whereby they can feel safe to make yeah. mistakes, feel confident with their teammates that they can stand up and go again and that it, it's not a disaster that they, they made a mistake or yeah, or lost the ball. No, they, they, you know, once they're out there, they understand that they're, they're not, they're an individual themselves, and 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 what they do within the team, but they're part of that bigger thing. You know, the team is 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 the bigger element that's there for them on the day. Yeah, and uh, you know, as as you said, Brendan, it's all about we and we encourage them to 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 make choices, make decisions. You know, that's that's what it's all about. You know. They're not always the right decisions, but they have made a decision, you know, and that's then you, you can then learn from from your sort of history as to as to what you might do in that situation when it confronted again. Um, but uh, yeah, when things things go wrong on the pitch, and they and they always do, and they always will do, and it's how the boys all come together and support each other, so no one feels alienated at all or victimized because they've made a bad decision. You know, once once that happens, then people then will stop. will stop uh, making choices and uh, and making decisions. But um, I think James is right. Going back to what he was saying, it is, it, it was um, a lot easier. Um, I mean, well, one of the one of the academy players making their debut was my son, actually. So, um, yeah, yeah, we ended up playing in the centre together for uh, the last um, half an hour. So, yeah, that was proud a, dad. Oh, yeah, I was a proud. Yeah. I am a proud dad. I was especially <laughs> proud on the day. Um but uh, yeah, it's uh, there is certainly more empathy when you're on the pitch and you're within the team. Um, whereas you know sometimes from an outsider's point, of course outsiders, but from part of the academy, but looking at the game from the sidelines, yeah, you can't feel what they're feeling. Um, and it certainly was a bit of an eye opener for me. Yeah, and and that's part of like what I do a lot with uh, a group of uh, practitioners, Dr. Michael Mantel. And Dr. Darren Davison, Dr. Michael Mantell is a psychologist from San Diego, and, and Dr. Darren Davison is a oncological surgeon from Seattle. And we're starting to do what we're helping coaches regulate the psychophysiology to create safe spaces so that not only are they internally regulating them, their own environment, as James mentioned, with the player on the individual, the mind, the body, and the emotion or the, the emotive, how do you use your emotions and, and your demeanor to project out safety as well? So how you identify where you're at, how you use an actionable skill on how to catch where you're at. So you might be really angry and you use something like maybe diaphragmic breathing, maybe reframing, maybe att appropriate attention or focus, maybe uh, alleviating the tension, mental tension by bringing your eyes into the crowd, bringing your eyes, causing your optical nerve to open, uh, suppressing cortisol. How do you find little techniques that helps regulate your physiology so you don't transfer that onto the players? So again, this bi-directional within the team, meaning the individual and the group level, but it's also within the coach. 
Tim, what are you feeling internally? How are you projecting that out in the environment? And how is the environment then in turn affecting you? So there's a lot of movements going on there. And that that could be grounded in many, many different ways based off of something that you find relaxing or calming, or you might need to be energized. Something might bad might have happened. You might find your way of uh, grounding yourself by pretending like you're throwing that out in the trash. Or maybe making a mark on your hand saying, all right, that's one thing I don't have to think about ever again. And whatever is unique to you. You know, football players have a reset button on their on their tape. There's so many things that you can do. And are you putting that into practice? And, and no one's perfect by any means. Sometimes a ref makes a horrible call. But are you making the situation better based off of your demeanor? Are you further creating physiological and psychological tension on the pitch by the way you reacted to a bad call of the referee? Or are you doing that where you're, you know, you're you're bossing your kid around too much in the centers. Not saying that happened late, but you never know. Like, I saw a lot of tension. The way around, I think it was. Uh... <laughs> well, well, he, <laughs> might, he might argue I was lacking a bit of pace. I think that was the issue. So. <laughs> and when you're in your late thirties, that happens. You know, a lot of that times does... the, the young bucks don't understand that. But um, yeah, that that's something I've really moved more into. Is how do we regular internal environment to project safety out to our external environment how do we perceive our external environment appropriately to to remind ourselves that we are psychologically and physiologically safe i like um i like that idea and thank you for referencing the the video you saw uh of the the talk i did on on the teamwork of the mind body and emotions that funnily enough I've just finished the book, The Chimp Paradox by uh, Professor Steve Peters. I don't know as you've you've heard that one. He's very clear, he's very clear about um he's worked with a lot of uh, Liverpool FC, um, Ronnie O'Sullivan, the British cycling team and that sort of stuff. Very clear about the fact that sometimes our emotions take over and our uh, sense of reason, the human element of us can't control it. Um but also that uh, like you were saying um about the um automated responses being a he refers to it as the computer element or you know i'd call it the sort of the, the body element you do things instinctively um and he talks very clearly about how really you want those things these three things to work so i'm i'm pleased you got that right in that book anyway off of what i was thinking <laughs> but we but we talked to the lads um in the academy and um i say the lads because sadly we haven't got um uh, uh enough of a a ladies team to create a a female academy uh, down here yet but hopefully that changes you know one day soon but we have them in uh, occasionally to do video analysis and we look at what they're doing and and it's interesting to see their emotional responses off of the back of a, a mistake um, and I suppose it this ties back to the reason I first got a passion to do something like the Be More Rugby um, podcast and, and wrote my book is because Although I can't explain it as eloquently as yourself, um, or oh, you're um, too proud with that that adjective. My wife would say something very different. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's so interesting to listen to the science behind it. But I kind of see it as we're not talking about elite elite athletes really, but we can take the lessons from them. But go out on the pitch and make your mistakes, and realize that 
you'll come off the pitch, you might have lost, but next week you can have another go. Prepare for it in a better way. And if they take that into real life and realise that when they go to work and they, you know, they cock something up at work and they're getting a bollocking from the boss and potentially going to lose their job, in the end, it was a mistake. You can have another game. Just yeah. prepare yourself and, and go again. It's not, it's never the end of the world, but sometimes in real life it feels like it. And if you haven't learned that occasionally you're going to knock on or occasionally you're going to miss the tackle or, or occasionally you're just, you're not going to perform, yeah. then, then you can cope with things so much better. Yeah, one of the most soothing lines from rugby is unlucky. Yeah, I, I, you hear that all over the pitch. Unlucky, mate. Unlucky, someone taps you on the butt and you, you again, that reset. All right, it was unlucky. I miss the ball. I rarely do that. So one of the times it happens, how I move forward. And really what I do is, is I help people, um, not only on the micro level, but on the macro level, move along the continuum of achievement. And that was way different for everybody. My idea of achievement and success is different than yours, different than Lee's, different than some of my teammates, some of you know my family members. That was different for everybody. So how do we create fluid environments by minimizing as much friction as we possibly can. And that, that comes from careful planning and, and dialogue with your team and creating environments that are psychologically safe. And we're talking about making decisions, right? As part of a paper where, where it was the, the statistician for it. And the student looked at humbly how psychological safety influences creativity and they found that psychological safety mediated humble leadership so humble leadership alone did not increase creativity only when psychological safety was there the creativity increased and i i don't know all about champagne rugby and the history of the sport i mean i, I got more in around the late 2000s you know right around 2009 2008, probably have it earliest, but the game has evolved a lot and it's requiring player decision making, player safety. That how do I find the best solution to this unique problem that I haven't faced before? I might not ever face again. And when you have a humble leader and you pair that up with psychological safety, creativity increases exponentially. So their, their willingness to take a risk or make a unique play or do something that they haven't done before will increase exponentially. Then the only thing that that increased creativity was shared knowledge. So not only from the shared knowledge of the coaching staff going back and forth, but shared knowledge in between the membership. So we're even talking about kind of culture, right? Maybe you and the players design culture together. You design core principles or Collectively, you design your coaching philosophy based around what your players want. Okay. Well, they're the ones who have to carry out that part of the membership. So you can be this wonderful genius and you can come up with all these great ideas, but if the people aren't willing to do it or carry it out, or you're not creating the environment to allow them to, to do that, then then you're 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 spinning your wheels and you do all this for nothing. So that's why I like to share with people that psychological safety and a growth mindset, they're predicated upon each other. But that will only happen when you have a humble leader. And then that will then in turn lead to more risk-taking and people 
becoming having a better relationship with failure because we all fail. No one's perfect. And how you keep moving forward from those failures opposed to creating a motivating environments or stagnating or uh, the worst result, quitting and giving up. I think in rugby, you see those creative players. We we liken them to um, those players that are playing right on the very edge that it's mo- mostly genius, but occasionally completely reckless. And there's such that fine line between, wow, look at that. I can't believe that come off. What an amazing play to why the hell were they doing that? It's just ridiculous. Just play the simple ball. But I think you're right. If there's that opportunity for them to try it, that's when genius is, is going to happen. Yeah, I think that's, that's correct. Um, and just thinking about the game, um, uh, Brendan, you said you sort of were into the game about 2008, that mm-hmm. sort of time. I was just thinking about going back quite a lot further than that, actually. I was just thinking about going back into the um, like uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, and uh, thinking about the, the rugby I was playing within then, and also the the international rugby, which was which was about <clears throat> on the pitch generally at international rugby level. You'd have probably three decision makers. You know, everyone else just did their job. The other, and there was these three players that changed things, made things different. You know, created opportunity. Um, and uh, now we're in a situation where, where particularly what we're trying to do down here, but I believe this is also where where the seat where the international game is going. It's going to a place where where we want everyone on that pitch to be a decision maker. You know, what can you do? What can you bring to this game? You know, what's special about you, about you? You know, um, and that's that's quite a big. Um, I've only just thought. Is there something you said that that just made me think of it? But um, uh, I think that's, that's quite a, a big step within a thirty-year period. You know, oh, you, you know, yeah. to go from like a fifth of the team to the whole of the team. In in my in my opinion. Well, think about what a headache that is for. for the problem of the All Blast is you get hit from everywhere, right? Would you is it easier to prepare for three decision makers or fifteen of them? If everyone, of everyone who ever touches the ball, and if, depending on how you have your offense set up, when I was coaching, we ran one through three, one through three, one, which is unheard of for American rugby. And, and my mentor, who's actually the head of Korean rugby now, Charlie Charlie Lowell, who uh, is a South African who is living in Japan, and that's kind of how I got over there. Uh, brilliant man, uh, former, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, SAS. Uh, uh, South African Special Forces, um, awesome guy. Anyways, he um, introduced me to this, and I'm like, holy cow, if I can find a way to implement this, and even on the simplified version of the 1331, where you have four different pods, yep. and I can create four different decision makers with two options off that and build upon that, the American game, a lot of people didn't know what was going on. We have been stuck in 1980s rugby of you know two two uh, packs of four for the for the uh, the fours and then all the backs out in the back you know and then maybe we get them a ball and maybe there'd be a move ran in the middle of the game but the way that rugby is changing and spreading the field and you have all these different decision makers not just the ten not just the, well the nine the ten and then the twelve you know using kind of the second fly hat but they're bringing the fifteen in as a third fly half now. And and you feel kicking in the middle of that. That is a headache. A headache to prepare for. On top of that, 
how much pressure does a fly hat feel in a game to make all the decisions? Yeah. Right? Like when you, I remember when I was playing rugby, especially at, at the amateur level in Chicago, whoever was available on the weekend, when I found up right before we gave that last squeeze, before going out on the pitch, I would look around and I would either feel really, really good as a captain, number eight, who was in my 15 that day. Or I'd be like, oh, man, where's Joe McQuaid? Why is he not playing one of my old teammates? Or where's TJ Kenyon? Why is TJ not in the scrum today? And I would be thinking, like, oh, man, we're, we're, there's a lot of responsibility on me now. So then not only do you make it impossible to cover as a defense or, or a line to, but now, now you're diffusing responsibility on the players and the, and the internal pressure that they're feeling because on those days, I knew Will Begani was going to take a big run. I knew that my old teammate in the UK, Dougie Greenwood, was going to crack the line. All I had to do was clean it up over it. And you alleviate so much pressure when you disperse responsibility. I'm going to call half time on this because I can see us being over all night because I'm really enjoying <laughs> you at the moment. So, um, so we're just going to have a half time announcements. Um, Really, the only announcement I've got is to all and everybody that's listening. This weekend, we got some Six Nations games on. I can guarantee your local club will be playing them on the tally. Get down there, support your local club. Even if you're not a member of the club, you'll be welcome. Go and spend some money behind the bar. Watch the Six Nations. Get involved. Enjoy. Meet new people. Have a fantastic weekend. And support local rugby clubs all over the world because none of us want to end up in the predicament that the Welsh Rugby Union is facing. We don't want to end up losing our clubs. We just want this sport to, to keep growing. So please, I urge you, go and watch the Six Nations at a club somewhere. Just search up where your local club is and get down there. You will be welcome and you will have a fantastic time. And to any clubs that want any announcements on our halftime announcements, um, like we said before, get in touch with us either on any of the social medias at be more rugby or be more rugby or email us at info at be more com, and we'll pick up your message we just want to promote grassroots rugby so second half second half is where we look at how rugby has influenced yourself did you fancy kicking off the second half yeah let's go for it shall we um so uh brendan first uh question for you is uh what does rugby mean to you I'm gonna try not to cheer up. I'll promise you that. And if you if I do edit it out so none of my rugby friends see this, okay? <laughs> no, it, it, it's just so transformational in who I became. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it was a tipping point in my life that I grew up being a rugby player. I grew up um I had a new maturity, I had a new outlook on life. The way that American sport was ran up until uh, I got really involved with rugby, and there's still a lot of it lingering, is completely contrary of all the wonderful psychological things we're talking about. I remember the best coaching tool that many of the coaches I had growing up was the F word. <laughs> Not saying I never used the F word. I've used the F word in excitement as a coach. You know, I use it with my friends, but that was the motivator that was used at you. 
um, screaming and yelling was the only really form of communication, especially in the American football world. Um, even when I was coaching rugby, a unique approach where I would coach from the press box. Everyone else is on the field. And I had to do that as part of my evolution. I had to separate myself from being on the field. And being on the field wasn't creating the environment you were talking so I went up in the box, kind of like they would do in professional rugby. And it was completely contrary to what everything I knew about life. And even me, I grew up in a, a larger metropolis area. I grew up outside New York City to begin with, and then in New Jersey. And then growing up outside of Chicago, I met people from all over the world, but I never really got to know them on uh, such a personal level so after that if I got into rugby that spurred me to go travel I mean I've been over 50 countries and a lot of it is either through rugby or because I had a friend that I played with who you know, had me come to save with them my friend Danny Schroeder who was a Kiwi who was living in Australia let me sleep on an air mattress for two weeks and then helped me out in, in uh, my travels in New Zealand and now he lives back there with his family, but just opened this whole world of people and things. And I had no idea. I felt like, I almost felt like uh, Jim Carrey from the movie uh, Truman Show. When he finally gets to the edge of the earth, he's like, what do you mean this has all been, you know, there's a whole other world out there. So I, I that was kind of such an eye-opening experience for me. That's cool. That's really cool. So, what would you say that you've learned from rugby that's helped you most in your day-to-day -day life? The variability of people and the variability of approaches to everything and anything. Um, what Even what I shared today, um, some more of it relate, uh, rooted in psychological theory. <clears throat> I don't know if that is, that's, those aren't my final thoughts. I hope I look back on this and say, man, whoo, that changed a lot. Or whoo, I can't believe I said that. Is that right now, this moment, that's my best knowledge that I have to share with you on how to create motivating uh, environments for the individual and the group. But I think it just really taught me to be a learner and realize that I don't, I'll never, ever have everything figured out. And it helped me learn how to become comfortable with that. And that constant being outside of my comfort zone helped me become a much more worldly and and better adjusted person, but it also let me realize that I don't know anything. <laughs> that that my my slice of life and the prism in which I view the world um, is a narrow thing. And that I need to continue to go and challenge myself to be a better version of myself. And I think if I'm able to do that given my background uh, and some of the unlikely things that I'm involved in, you know, like when you introduced me as a yoga instructor, people are like, what the hell is a rugby player, former college football player, number eight, you know, big guy doing teaching yoga. I've been practicing yoga for 20 years. You know, I started practicing in college. So there's that constant evolution, that constant self-discovery and challenging yourself and realizing that, um, when you get complacent, is one number one for me at least. Life gets very boring. Number two, 
you're no longer growing and maximizing the short amount of time that you have on this planet. So I, I don't mean to get esoteric on you, but um, clearly it, it is a uh, very, when I talk about rugby, I talk about influences on my life. It's a very, very personal and uh, emotional thing. I think, um, I think everybody that we've spoken to before said, again, it's a, yeah, a very personal and emotional thing. Um, it does do that though. It just, it touches you in, in that way that, that gives you something that, that I, I don't want to say no other sports have, but team sports, camaraderie, friendships, you know, yep. like you say, opening your eyes up to, to other people. And I want to tell you, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm fully on board. The first couple of times I had a really difficult time <laughs> having a beer with the opposite team. <laughs> and this is embarrassing. I but they're like, yeah, we're gonna go party with the other team, or you know, have a beer and a meal. I'm like, I'm not going there. <laughs> they're like, what do you mean you're not going there? I'm like, why? We just lost it then. Like, I don't want to go hang out with the other team. I'm like, no, fool. This is part of the sport. And then uh, gradually, I got better and better at it. Gradually, I, I I became the one facilitating it. And then, one of my nose breaks, I had the have a beer with the guy who broke my nose that day. And that, if you can't, if you can't check your ego at the door for that, or learn, if that's not a humbling experience, I don't know what it is because he was huge, and not only he took my nose and my body with it. So, um, yeah, it 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 was a very uh, wasn't a hundred percent all in transition, but once I got involvement in and fully, I'm sort of around, you know how how the the sport operated, uh, then I became all in. And and that was a very American approach to it. Coming, like I said, coming out of the age of Bobby Knight and some of those coaches were famous for Bear Bryant and, and Bo Schembechler, where they ran it almost as a military organization. A lot of that was still lingering and permeating through who I was. When you villainize the other team and you, you're your adversary, you talk about them in unscrupulous ways all week and, and, you know, dehumanizing them and saying all this horrible stuff. And I apologize for doing that. You know, it's very embarrassing, but it was a, it was a, uh, an education. I, I, I can't stress that enough to you. I remember being on the, the sideline when we hadn't long set the academy up. Um, we had a, a new lad come in and joined, hadn't played much rugby. Lovely, great, great big lad. And uh, we were away to, oh, Winchester. Going there this weekend. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Um, and Winchester scored against us. Fantastic try. And I started applauding and just saying, fantastic, what a try. And he grabbed me by the arm and said, what are you doing? You're applauding them. They're the opposition. Like, that was a fantastic try. And it needed applauding. Simple as that. And that's what we do. And very quickly, he got on board with that and, they, they, it just does. It does give you that, and and I'm surprised that's not in American football, though. Well, I think it is. I think it's it's just particular to to rugby, yeah. to be honest. Um, you know, the fact that we're able to appreciate what the opposition do and they appreciate the opposition scoring against us, mm. you know, and appreciate the opposition, you know, beating our bodies up for eighty minutes and then having a beer with them. Well, with we them we had a lot of appreciation the weekend. Yeah, didn't mass, we? massive <laughs> appreciation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, the fact that you you, you can do that. There, I don't think there is any other sport like it, and it, it is incredibly alien to people coming into it for the first time. 
you know, you just don't understand, you can't understand the concept. Um, but if you're prepared to immerse yourself in it and give it, give it the time, uh, you know, and uh, sort of take down all your preconceived ideals, yeah, it gives you so much more back. And you even think about it at a foundational level, like we're talking about players being the best selves, placing their attention appropriately. If if you're villainizing the opposition all week and you're holding that grudge, you're, I'm very big on where your attention goes and where your energy flows. That's from Dr. Daniel Siegel, um, pretty prominent neuroscience and psychiatrist. But think about how much energy you spend hating the other team. I can't believe the amount of time that I put in that, the emotion that went pouring in that, opposed to maybe watching more game film. I'm talking from a, from a football, yeah. football perspective. But what if I actually, instead of sitting there thinking about the game, what if I didn't? more yoga or what if I would have done something to help calm my body so that I'm, I'm eating healthier or I'm drinking more water or you insert anything in there. The amount of pressure that that adds to what you're doing because you villainize the other team, this is counterintuitive and, and it's infused in the sport of rugby for the benevolence and, and the beauty of the game. But, from an op optimal functioning standpoint, think about how detrimental that is. So you walk around every day, you know, having that some of those agitated neurochemicals, thinking about the team you're playing on the weekend, and 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 thinking about them in a certain way, speaking about them in a certain way, and you know, finally having that that release on Saturday. That's that's so interesting. Often, um, people walk down the street and you and you look at them coming towards you, and it's you almost find yourself in a bit of a battle as to who's going to step sideways out of their way on the, on the, we call it pavement. You, what do you call it? Yeah. Sidewalk, you call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's, you there's almost that danger of always having that idea that there's an enemy rather than just somebody else. And yeah, a lot of tension. Neurochemicals yeah. say that are floating around and you know, what happens just because you're not in the right mindset to go. Yeah. You know, we're out here for some fun. Yeah. When all yeah, that Yes. Sorry, sorry, Brendan. So all, oh, all, all that negative energy and negative effort could be put into something much more positive. You know, mm -hmm. how can I improve what I'm going to do this weekend? You know, how can I prove prove my team? You know, how can I prove my input into the in, into the whole experience? Um, yeah, it's uh, that, that's quite an interesting thought, and how much time there is spent with these negative ideals. Yeah, yeah, it made me enjoy rugby so much more. I I, I disassociate myself from the sport really. I wanted to win. I wanted to do well. I, I I was very excited before it came, not only somatically but psychologically. Um, but it it distanced me distanced me from the win and the loss. And I remember one of my teammates in, in the UK coming up to me after a game and handed me a pint and said, "Did you enjoy yourself?" And I was still going through my transformation. Um, and I said, "No, we lost." And he kept saying, "But did you enjoy yourself?" And then finally, after him like. What I thought was berating and him just trying to get the the probably the best emotionally healthy answer. I finally maybe it was just more points, Brendan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course I'm enjoying myself, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the fifth, I, I was always best at the uh, the third half, but uh, anyways, uh, I, I I finally convinced myself that yes, I I you know I really did enjoy myself. It wasn't the result that we had and that we wanted, um, but you know this is how it worked out and. I'd like to be there. I'm lucky to be here. I really enjoyed myself. And um, it's just that 
cognitive behavior therapy that that comes with uh, changing your cognition, changing the way you think. I think um, I think we need that for for the academy lads as well, just to get them in that enjoying it moment. I mean, at the weekend mm -hmm. we were destroyed, and the the you know we were probably five tries down with no response, and you could see their heads going down. And all I found myself doing was turn to them and going, "You having fun? Come on, let's." Let's get back out there. Yeah, they might have scored, but let's go again. You know, enjoy it. Yeah, then it started raining. It was getting darker, slightly colder. Kept pick everyone, I kept everyone picking you up off the floor. Fun. You kept picking me up. Yeah, <laughs> we're all having fun. It was. <laughs> that it was, was great. Good. Yeah, it was good fun. Should we move on to our next question then? Uh, is that me? Uh, where am I? Oh, right. Yes. Uh, yeah, Brendan, next question. Um, what do you hope people get from rugby to help them with their daily lives? New and challenges and failures or things that don't go according to plan, doing them in a different way and recalibrating that relationship and using it as an opportunity to learn opposed to as a condemnation or benchmark or some sort of indication of who you are as a human being there's always another play there's always another opportunity uh, you you have to get yourself up off the pitch and go look for it and that metaphorically in rugby as well as in, in life there again if, if this podcast is a million people see it awesome good for you good for us right but i just hope that me verbalizing some of these ideas help helps me get better at verbalizing them for the next time or for the one-on-one -on -one conversation with a student or my wife or some of my friends. And that getting back up off the floor is the hardest part, but there, therein lies the most fulfillment and therein lies self-efficacy and through that self-advocacy is where you really, really start to enjoy your life because you know that one mistake is not who I am, but it's an opportunity to, to move closer to who I want to be. And if anything that people get from this podcast, I really hope, and, and rugby in general, just the, the, the ethos of the game, I hope, I hope that becomes apparent to them because uh, it became apparent to me and until that happened, um, I'm not really proud of of, of my former life. And I'm, I can be transparent and honest about that, that um, the person who I become, I'm, like everybody, I wish people in my past knew what I've become so they can see the evolution of a person. And rugby is a major, major, major part of that. Um, yes, the game, but just the, the, the way that they sport uh, operates in a way that individuals within that sport, men and women, uh, both conduct themselves. So it was an eye-opening thing. Love that. Thank you for that answer. I just underscored and boxed in one mistake is not who I am. I love that. That's really, really insightful. Well, that, that becomes a turning point for a lot of people. And, and even in my own personal life, um, at one, at some points, I define myself by my own mistake, right? I define myself by certain experiences, good or bad, and 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 even you're allowed to apply that to new things in your life. 
if you go and win the championship, that's great. But now, how do we try to replicate our best performance? Not that, we're not always going to win the championship because that's an outcome goal. But how do we replicate that performance so that we have an opportunity to win the championship? Or how do we reach to our progress to replicate that performance? So maybe we now train three days a week, or maybe we now work more on decision making. Maybe we work more on defense, or maybe we work more on getting back up off the park uh, after a rock or after a tackle or whatever it might be. Um, I just think that ethos of of being happy but never satisfied, and and not I don't want to say not satisfied in a in a negative way, but knowing that this is. That we want to be the best version of us, and that requires continual growth. And do you think there's ever a point where you reach that the best you can be? Is that a continual journey? Because I, I kind of look at it and go, uh, to be the best you can be, nobody knows what that is. Mm-hmm. You've just got to work towards it, and and you'll get somewhere. And when you're, you know, in your last hours of life hopefully you'll look back and go, yeah, I gave that a really good try yeah. versus I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a, a level at which I want to attain and don't attain it. And then get into the last hours of your life and going, I never achieved it. Well, yeah. how do you see that, that working? Is it, is it something you got to have something to attain to, or is it, you just hit as high as you can? So what I do a lot with people is I, I try to help them set lofty goals, but broad to allow for mobility and flexibility. I think rigid goals are great for some people. And some people need that. Some people need the keto diet. Some people need Atkins or whatever fad might be out. Well, a lot of that rigidity is very unsustainable. I, I, I share with James, I have a 12-month-old daughter, and we like her to have two naps in one day. But realistically, that isn't always feasible, right? And sometimes it's not feasible based off of work commitments or babysitter commitments or, or uh, social commitments or whatever it might be. And I'd rather be flexible and adaptable than be rigid and, and move with the wave. I don't know if you are either your surfers. Or, you know, I, I need to adapt to the wave. The wave doesn't need to adapt to me. And I mean, that's probably one of the best skills that you can train not only young people to deal with, but, but anybody in general. How, how do you take what in front of you, how you apply a lot of the frameworks that you might have experienced or you have from previously in your life. I mean, how you adapt to this new situation so that you can be true to yourself and say grounded, but you tactfully handle that challenge and you put yourself in the best position to achieve it or whatever it might be. And, you know, the, the whatever the last hours of my life might be, um, I know this path I'm currently on, I'm going to be happy. And, and that comes just from a lot of uh, hard-earned self-awareness that um, if I'm ever lacking in that area, my wife has no problem in, in grounding me and letting me know right away, I'm sure as your better halves do. Or my friend in Bath, uh, Chris Thompson, who I put rugby with, he calls my wife my significantly better half because she's <laughs> significantly smarter, more emotionally adaptive, and and better looking than I am as well. Um, so yeah, 
she grounds me a lot in that in that way. But I, uh, yeah, I, I know that the way I do, um, I am malleable in the way that I do try to always challenge myself and, and challenge other people. I know that whenever those last moments happen, I'll be happy. That's cool. So a last question then, what advice would you give anybody thinking of taking up rugby? I think I know the answer, but I'm looking forward to it too. Be patient. I mean, patient, uh, patience and flexibility um, are, if you're able to master those, it's going to help you ride the ups and downs that you're going to have a lot of beginner's luck. You're going to have people... I know when I first got to the UK, they were very excited about my physical abilities and, and what I was able to do in small um, close-ended drills. But then in the bigger game, I think that then fully transpired because I didn't have a lot of rugby in, in my life. It wasn't a natural thing at that point. So understanding that you, know, you might have some beginner's luck and you're going to have a lot of great things happen, but there's going to be things that you need to overcome. And that, and that is where you're going to not only find the most enjoyment out of the sport, but uh, people noticing your growth and your vulnerability to do that. That's how you can develop those lifelong relationships. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we don't have rugby as a focal point in our community like you do, but um, the relationships and the bonds that I forge with uh, people either overseas who are playing or coaching or whatever it might be, um, as well as here domestically, uh, when you get together, um, there's not there's not a lot, a lot of lost time that gets made up really quickly. And I got a um, a message oddly from my friend in South Africa in Cape Town today, and how are you, my boot? Are you doing well? I was thinking about you. I just want to let you know I love you. And then he hung up. I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know? So uh, I think if, if you those like anything, those who forge through and, and stay in difficult challenges on the other end are uh, very, very rewarding experiences. And I think rugby might be there uh, at the top, especially in my life, but for many, many other people. And you get welcome in this brotherhood that you're going to hit you in unlikely places. I was in a airport in Thailand. I had my rugby bag and some South African guy came up and he started talking to me. Well, later that night we met up and went and got beers. So I instantaneously had a best friend. But you never know. That's cool. I love that. Thank you for that. Well, I think we're going to have to call final whistle on our podcast. It's been absolutely insightful. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, as I say, some of the takeaways that I've got from there say so I I underlined one mistake is not who I am. I'm a big believer in the fact that just as you talked about, it really struck me giving the people that safe space to go and try and not be afraid of dropping a ball or knocking on or missing a tackle, but realizing what they did, which caused it, give them a chance to go again and having that safe space to go and do that and develop themselves um, really is something that, that I love about rugby viewing challenges as opportunities um, that you can really get hold of and, and make something of. Um, but yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on. What about you, Lee? 
Uh, yeah, it's been fantastic, Brendan, listening to you. Some really, really um, interesting thoughts there, um, which, which have actually just um, spurred a few sort of ideas in my head, to be honest. Um, but uh, just a couple of things you said, you know, like um, uh, on your journey, be happy, but uh, never satisfied. I like that one. Yeah, I really like that one. Um, you know, and uh, you know, in, in the game, there's life lessons. You know, once you're down on that turf, get yourself bounced back to your feet and get on with the next play. You know, there's always something coming coming again. So you've got a chance to put it right. You've got a chance to make it better. You know, there's some fantastic uh, information come, come out today. So, yeah, really enjoyed it, Brendan. Thanks so much for that. And thank you very much, number one, for having me on, as well as giving the more the the emotional and background side of rugby that a lot of people don't necessarily have the opportunity of a platform to, to share that with in an elongated form. You know, it, it takes a lot of time to, to share this and, and articulate uh, the way that the sport influences not only the individual, but but the bigger group and the things that you're doing and the guests you're having on uh, is probably stimulating a lot of conversation. I know within my own group on LinkedIn, uh, I know we've referenced your video several times and um, and the things that you're doing seem to be getting a lot of traction. So thank you for that, for the sport as a whole. And most importantly, thank you very much for the opportunity of the spend the midday chatting about rugby and, and how uh, beneficial it was to me, but uh, also hearing how beneficial it was to you too. No, it was really beneficial. It's it's exactly what BMO Rugby is, as far as yep. I'm concerned, mm-hmm. is exactly what it's it's all about. It's about chatting about rugby, learning the lessons, talking with inspirational people like yourself um, and hoping that, one person at least that is listening gains something that helps their life uh, improve one bit that's really really cool so everybody that's listened thank you again really appreciate it um if you're liking what we do like on whatever it is you're listening on and follow us on whatever you want to follow us on um and give us some support so we can have more inspirational guests uh like Brendan coming on and uh, talking to us about experiences and and uh, and the life lessons that we get from rugby. And uh, until next time, be more rugby. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, James. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you, Brendan. Cheers, boys. <laughs>